Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 6, verse from 12 to 9, in our NIV Bible on page 836. The Twelve Apostles. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and, and spent a night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called as Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Blessings and woes. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to heal him and to be healed of their diseases, who troubled by impure spirits were cured. And, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. May God bless these words. Amen. Morning. So one of the most dangerous phrases that anyone could say is, God told me, or God told me or said this to me that I should do this or that, or God told me this. It's one of the most dangerous phrases because to first think that we could actually know what God wants us to do is a very bold statement. Right? How do you know? You hear a little, sometimes maybe you have this feeling or you sense this presence that tells you to this, do this, or do that. Or for some people, they tend to actually have words for others of what they hear from God. I still remember one time, uh, I know of someone in uh, high school who was going, uh, working at a Christian bookstore. And while she was working there, her coworker came to her and said, God told me that I'm going to marry you. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard of a story like this before? Right? I guess it happens quite often, right? I mean, what better way to get someone to marry you, right? But to say, God told me that you're going to be my wife. How can you argue against someone who says God told them, right? Well, in this case, and maybe in other cases as well, from what I could tell, this, the woman didn't also feel the same way that God told her that, you know, this person would be her husband. And, you know, now, 20 years later, they're not married. <laughs> they're mar you know, I don't know about the guy, but the, the woman is married to someone different, and they have children, and, and they seem to be very happy. So, so who was right and who was wrong? Was this, right? Like, is she living in sin because she didn't believe what this man said about, you know, who she, she should marry? Or was the man wrong in the fact that, you know, he's not with her. This doesn't mean that I don't believe that God speaks to us. 
I, I wouldn't be up here if I didn't believe that God spoke to us, right? I truly believe that God speaks to us, but to say that God told me something isn't a light matter. It's something we need to be aware, take time to discern and to be aware of. Uh, of. I mean, I've heard countless stories of people using that phrase, God told me, for their own agendas and purposes than really because God told them something. One of my friend's dad had cancer, terminal cancer, and would go to these different prayer rallies and would hear these people say to him, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. Or there's some sin in your life that you haven't confessed, and because of that, God won't heal you. And sometimes I think he actually believed it, and he tried to do these things to try to get God to heal him. And in the end, you know, it didn't work. And what I would like to say is that if you ever hear someone say that to you, it's not true. I believe that God heals. Again, don't get me wrong. I believe that God heals. But it's not up to us to know when God heals somebody or not. That is not something we can know. I wish I could say that it's as simple as that. Right? Because then we could heal everybody, right? Or hopefully we could heal a lot of people. Just like, do this, do that, and God will heal you. But we can't control God. We can't control who gets healed. And so it's a mystery. And we got to just be okay in living in that space and trusting that God is the one who does it. And we live with that. We've been in this sermon series called Prayer Uh, postures of prayer where we're exploring how we can abide in God as God abides in us. And this morning, we are looking at prayer as mission. What does that mean, prayer as mission? Mission in the normal sense is like an assignment or a goal. For instance, in Mission Impossible, (laughs) so, so out there, if you choose to accept said mission, is an assignment or a mission that seems so impossible that only a select set, set of individuals with highly specialized skills could accomplish such a task. But when, usually when we think of mission, we think of mission as uh, missionaries, people who go in you know, other worlds, uh, other countries, and, and share the good news of Jesus. And this is related to what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey uh, everything I've commanded you. But mission comes actually from the Latin word to mean to send, to be sent. And the way I want us to think about mission this uh, morning isn't something that happens for select individuals who are sent by God to go on mission, but rather is something every Christian is called to. We're all called to be sent. We're sent by, so the Great Commission, for instance, isn't something that is just set up or, or set aside for special people with, with specialized uh, skill sets, but rather for every person made in the image of God. And we, I want us to consider mission as something that not what we have uh, to do. It's not something that's ours. But rather, mission is what God is already doing in our world and is calling us to join him in it. Luke, Luke, Luke 6, 12, one of those days, Jesus went out, out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. 
In our passage today, we see Jesus going up to the mountainside to pray. This isn't something new for Jesus. We've seen Jesus praying and taking time aside to pray and, uh, before he does anything. Um, and he would often take time away even uh, afterwards when he had had large crowds gathering around him. But in this instance, we see Luke saying that Jesus prayed out, uh, throughout the whole night, praying to God. So why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus need to spend the whole night praying to God? Jesus is about to make a very important decision. For a while now, people have been flocking to Jesus. People were coming out of the woodworks because they've heard of this person who, are, who has the ability to heal. He was performing miracles, but he was also teaching this message and talking about the kingdom of God in a way that was very different, um, that had a lot of authority, yet this man was a carpenter or son of a carpenter um, from a small town in Nazareth. And we see in large crowds of people following Jesus, and now here Jesus spends the night praying to God because he is about to make this important decision. He's picking his 12 disciples. The 12 apostles who will be part of his inner circle, the people he would train and mentor and shape to help accomplish the mission that Jesus was sent to do. So we see Jesus spending the night in prayer, in solitude, in listening to the voice of God to discern who the 12 disciples will be. On February 8th, 2023, so only nine months ago, in a small town called Wilmore, Kentucky, something extraordinary happened. After a regular chapel service in a small Christian university called Asbury University, where everyone was mandated to attend three times a week, after a sermon by a pastor named Zach, who later on would say that his talk was a dud, it wasn't a good talk, 18 students decided to stick around and to pray, and to pray for one another. And they started singing spontaneously, and they didn't stop. For some reason, God showed up, and people were drawn in. So people were going around saying, there's a revival happening. Students were coming and, and being uh, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And there was this like, sense of joy and peace and this presence that people couldn't explain. And so it became viral to the point that where people from all over the country were coming to this place. In a chapel, maybe not much bigger than this, maybe a little bit bigger, twice the size, uh, just to pray and sing and to be in the presence of God. It got to the point where there were 15,000 people coming per day, and they couldn't fit everyone, obviously, so they, were, they had, like, you know, screens outside. People were praying outside, and, and you just look it up, you'll see. It's kind of cool. But as you, as you can imagine in a scene or, or an event like this, people were showing up and even wanting to hijack what was going on. They were, did you know there are actually professional revivalists? Or sometimes they're, they're called revival chasers, kind of like storm chasers. So they see this thing happening, and people are drawn, and so some of these uh, professional revivalists will come and try to take over. They co-opt what is happening naturally, what God is doing, and co-opt it to say, look at me, look what's going on, like, what, look what I'm part of. 
So people were trying to, so some of these prominent revivalists would, you know, put it on social media, social media, I'm going to this thing in Asbury, right? Letting people know, yeah, you know, me as a, a revivalist is going to this thing, so you should also come, maybe. And other things like this was happening. So there's a, I, I didn't know about this, but there's this horn, I forgot what the horn is called, but this horn, uh, someone during this time of worship, and so I guess this was going on 24 hours, seven days a week for, for two weeks. But this one person came in and blew a horn during this time of, of singing and, and praying. And the horn is uh, connected to, to um, the symbol of MAGA politics, right? So MAGA just means make America great again, you know, so the conservative uh, uh, Trump politics. Um, and, and this horn was uh, connected to that. And they would use that horn as a way to say, I don't know, the, maybe God's kingdom is coming and, you know. And so, and so this person just like, imagine, you know, I'm doing my thing here and someone just blows their horn and it's like, what are you doing? What's going on? So that was happening. Uh, people were trying to do exorcisms on other people and there are there people who are starting to pray very violently. And so the ad hoc uh, organizers, because they, they never expected this to happen. So just few of these people just came together to say, you know, we want this to be, we want to honor what's happening. So they didn't want to say God is a movie because obviously God was. But at the same time, they didn't want it to be hijacked. I think there was a line, no celebrities except Jesus was one of their kind of taglines. And so also some of this violent praying and exorcism was happening. And so they told them to stop because that wasn't the spirit of what was happening in the space. And, and they were trying to make it something that it wasn't. And after two weeks... They stopped, and it's no more there. But more revivals were happening in, in other um, universities and schools, and it seemed to be something that was spreading in that sense. Uh, and I tell this story because when we talk about prayer as mission, we need to start with this truth first. Mission is never what we are doing for God, but rather what God is already doing. We believe that God is the one who loves the world and created it in the first place. And it is that same loving God who sends Jesus to save us and bring us into this fullness of life, this shalom or wholeness of life in God. This is why when we talk about prayer as mission, we need to start with that understanding that God is already working in the world and is inviting us to join in his mission. Prayer as mission isn't our way of telling God what he needs to do, to change his mind as if God isn't really caring about what's going on in this world. He doesn't care. So I need to kind of convince God, hey, God, can you just do something here? Because you're not doing things the way I want things to be done. Or you've, I've, and that sometimes we feel like, especially during, uh, with the war and what's going on in the world, we feel like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Can you do something? But we have to really believe that God is actually involved in this world. Sometimes we think God is like a clockmaker, right? So he builds the clock, winds it up, and lets it run, and just stands back and isn't involved. Yet we don't believe in a God like that because of Jesus. We believe that God is incarnational, is deeply invested, and cares about this world, 
and has come to be with us. So we believe in a God who is intimately involved, that cares about everything that's going on, that he knows our every thought, action, actions, and even our motives. Do you actually believe that, though? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we actually believe in a loving God who cares for you, who cares about what you do, who cares about your thoughts and motives and whether or not you ran the stop sign? I don't think he, I don't want to say he doesn't care, but maybe not to that minute detail. Maybe, maybe he does. Okay, that was, forget I said that. So the thing is, because if we truly believe that God is already working in this world and he cares about this world, then it's not about us trying to convince God of doing the things we want him to do, but rather saying, where are you working in this world and how can I join you in that? Because the truth is we all have conflicting desires and motives. None of us have pure motives, right? Even when we try, I don't know if you've ever seen that um, Friends episode where Phoebe is trying to just be kind for the sake of being kind. But then because as, he, as she is being kind, she feels good about it. So then she's like, I can't, I can't just be kind without being selfish. It's always about me, right? And this day she goes into the circle, right? And in some sense, I feel like we all know that our motives, though we try to be pure, isn't always pure. And sometimes we don't even know our own motives. We don't know why we want to do certain things. And we do them just because we feel it's right or we feel like this is how things should be. But it's really, it takes a lot of hard work to do that inner work of checking our motives, right? Why do we want to do things this way versus that? And we really do need to check that. And, and that's why we need to come to God in prayer. It's because when we pray, we are checking and submitting our motives, our desires, and our wants to the desires of God so that then we can serve him as he wants us to serve him. And I believe that this is why Jesus spends the night in praying. Jesus, being the Son of God, knows the mission that he has been set to do and isn't phased by the crowds and others who demand their ways of Jesus. Even, even his would-be disciples later on would try to change the mission of Jesus uh, and, and wanted him to be something that he was not. Yet Jesus spends time with God to discern to align his heart to God so that what Jesus de desires is what God the Father desires. So after spending a night in prayer, Jesus chooses or discerns and chooses his 12 disciples. Prayer as mission is first recognizing that God is already working in the world. Secondly, prayer as mission is to spend time praying. Just as Jesus spent time praying, we ourselves need to start from the place of prayer Instead of jumping at the chance of doing something for God, we need to take the time to align ourselves with what God desires before we start doing things for God. Henry Nouwen, I, I, you know, believes that we can only do mission as we start from the place of solitude. Usually we want to start with doing stuff for God, and then when we can't do it, we ask for help with our people, and then we turn to prayer. But rather, he believes that we need to start from a place of solitude, then move to community, then into mission. And this is what we see happening in our story today. Jesus starts with prayer, creates a community by calling his 12 disciples, then goes out to do his mission. 
And I know you've already heard me say this before about Nawan and, and what Nawan says, but I agree with this so much that it's worth repeating again. Mission starts with solitude because it's in solitude we need to hear and believe and embrace the truth that we are God's beloved sons and daughters. We really need to be able to live and really believe that to be true. That before we do anything for God, before we're called out to do anything on his mission, we need to first be at a place where we're secure in who we are in God's, as God's beloved sons and daughters. Because when we're secure in that, when we're in a place of security, then our identity, our worth, what people think about us isn't wrapped up in our mission and how much we're at the center of it. This will help us to let the mission of God be about God and not about us. The attention isn't about how people see you in something and your involvement in it, but it becomes about the other. It moves away from self-centered mission to that of Christ and other-centered mission. You know, Jesus had the same voices and temptations in his time in the wilderness. Right after Jesus was baptized and the Spirit of God fell upon him and said, you are my beloved son, he was sent into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And that temptation wasn't temptation of power, wealth, but rather to his identity as the beloved son of God. So if you remember, it says, if you are the son of God, this is what Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, then turn this bread in, uh, stone into bread, right? If you're the son of God, jump off and see, and then the angels will come and save you. And Jesus says, no, I know you're saying that to me, but I know who I am. I am the beloved son of God. I don't need to let your voice influence what I do. We start with solitude, move to community, and then to mission. I'm not going to touch on community this morning, except to state the importance of discerning the voice of God in community. Hearing God, hearing from God, is never an individual task. It's never just between you and God. Yes, it starts from a place of you and God, where we want to hear what God says to us, but you know what we want to hear? We want to hear that God says, you are my beloved son and daughter. That's what we want to hear. And anything else that we do hear from God, we need to test what we hear from God or what we think we hear from God, right? We talk about this. this it's dangerous to just assume that you are hearing from God. And we need a community of faith around us to discern whether or not what we heard was from God or was not, whether or not it's from God or the voice of Satan. Jesus was tempted, so why, why do you think we wouldn't be tempted? Right? If Jesus was tempted, we're going to be tempted as well. And this is one thing I do love about our church. Our church is intentional in listening to God in community. We have pastors, elders, and deacons as our leadership team, and we try to meet quarterly uh, to discern the will of God together. And as part of that discerning, it's, it's never to say that God just speaks to one person and the rest of you have to listen. So God doesn't just speak to uh, Greg or to myself and then the rest have to listen because this is what God said. There are times where God will speak to individuals, but it's within that community of faith in our leadership team we discern the voice of God together. 
And one of the things we do, I think that's critical in that movement, is that we pray for a prayer of indifference. The prayer of indifference is to say to God, I have passions, I have desires, and I care about how this church is run. But I'm going to put those things aside and to trust and be indifferent to all those things except to the will of God, right? It's to to be able to say, even though I think I know what's right, and sometimes we as pastors, we think we know what's right. Even though I think I know what it says in the Bible right here, and you should do what I say it says, because that's what God says, is to say that we can let go. So it's, a, it's, not, it's not something that happens in a simple prayer, right? This is, a, this is an ongoing work of God in our lives. To a place where we could say, God, I have these desires, I have these wants, I have these longings which can come from even places of our own hurt and pain. I have those things, and I feel like they're from you, but yet I want to hold them lightly. I want to submit those things to the community of faith, to trust that you are not only speaking to me but to others, and we discern the voice of God together. If you ever want to read a book about that, it's called Pursuing God's Will Together by Ruth Haley Barton. Uh, and, the, and when you become on, uh, on the leadership team, or part of the team, we uh, ask every one of us to read that, and we, we try to follow that together as, as best as we can. I mean, if you think about it, if God is a loving God, and we are placing ourselves before God in this kind of posture, right, where we're saying, we're trusting in you, God, I have all these thoughts, ideas, desires, wants, needs, but I'm going to let those go because I believe that you are a God who loves and you are already working in this world. Why wouldn't that kind of God actually, you know, show us and, and guide us and give us his will? Um, if you ever wonder about, and this side t- tangent a little bit, if you ever wonder what God's will for your life is, I could tell you what that is. Because <laughs> God told me. No. <laughs> it is... To love God and love others. Simple. Even in this, um, when, when you're discerning the will of God in your life, you know, what, what kind of job you should do, what kind of career you should have, who you should marry. One of the questions when you can't think of the answer or you don't feel like God is leading you in one direction or another, the question we need, you, you're supposed to ask yourself is, what would love compel me to do? Right? Because God call us, calls us to love God and love others as our neighbors. So that action then becomes, yeah, I don't know what to do. Well, what, what, what does love mean in that situation? What does love for the other, not for yourself, what, the, what does love for the other mean in that situation? And that's God's will. So you don't need 10 steps. You don't need, you know, sometimes when you're struggling in that way, a simple thing would be is, yeah, what does love compel you to do? Luke chapter 6, verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. A large crowd of his disciples and followers were there, and many heard of this person, Jesus, and swarmed towards Jesus. Just as in Asbury University, word had traveled, 
and, and went viral as it could go viral in those days. Uh, and so people from all over the region came to see what was going on. Many people came because they were broken, desperate, and seeking for something better. They came not knowing what they needed, except that maybe they had a need. And Jesus would often ask them as people, ask people uh, questions who came to him needing something. And usually it was to help them get beyond their surface level need. It, doesn't mean, it didn't mean that he didn't care about the need that people had, but he wanted to really touch and help people discover what their true need was. The real need is, right, being in relationship with God. But if you notice one thing about Jesus is that he wasn't trying to gather a large crowd ever. If any, anything, anytime a large crowd gathered around him, he would try to get away from it. And one, in fact, one time he would turn around to this large crowd of people just following him for, uh, for, for God knows what reasons. He would say to them, if you want to be my disciple, you have to carry the cross and follow me. Meaning you have to die to yourself. And then a lot of people would disperse because this is like, oh, no, this is too hard for me. I just wanted to come to get healed. Or, you know, I wanted to just get this experience, be part of something bigger than myself. And Jesus calls us to something greater and maybe better. And what I love about Jesus is that he isn't always, he's never actually swayed by other voices and other people's agendas he has come for his mission to bring the good news to the poor, to bring about this new kingdom of God. And through the very people who the world neglected and considered cursed, Jesus would bring about this new kingdom. In verse 20, right after this, uh, our passage today, we see this huge crowd come to Jesus, and this is what Jesus says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. Some of you might be aware that this is very similar to the Sermon on, on the Mount, and this is like the pivotal um, sermon by Jesus that, that talks about the kingdom life and the ethic of what it means to be uh, the, part of this new mission. And so Jesus didn't come to start some revolutionary uh, movements. Not, he didn't come in power to dethrone the Romans as, as, as even the disciples uh, expected and wanted from Jesus. But rather, he came to bring about the kingdom of God where the poor, the weak, the sick, the marginalized can be saved. That people who thought they needed Jesus were the ones he came for, not the ones that thought they were fine. And so in the midst of a world that is full of so many voices, we need to be able to notice the movements of God. We need to believe that God is already working in the world and to join him in what he is already doing. This starts from a place of prayer where we can listen to the voice of God who says good things about us, who calls, who calls us his beloved. It is in this space where we align ourselves, our motives, and our hearts to what God is already doing. And it is, when we, then, it is then we are able to be in community, discern the voice of God together, and to seek out what God is already doing in our world and in the people around us. You know, one of the metaphors that, I, uh, that came to mind about this was, uh, was uh, the, way we, uh, the way we treat God, right, is, is that idea, metaphor of, of a sailboat. 
In, did you know I was looking this up just to see? I'm like, I, I don't know how sailboats work, right? Because uh, that's not in my um, world of um, whatever. Um, and so you can't go straight against the wind. I always wonder, like, how do they, you know, go against the wind? Well, you can't. You could go along, you could you harness the wind to go, I think, diagonal to the wind and kind of still go towards the wind, but you can't go directly against the wind. That's just not possible. But the way we, I find we treat God is we treat him like a sailboat in that we are the sailboat and we catch the wind of God, right? We catch God as a wind, but then we steer the boat to the way we want to go, meaning we use God and we use his power, right, just to do what we want to go in the direction we want. We like the wind, but only because it serves our purposes. And if it doesn't direct us the way we want, maybe if it means that we need to go, go against the wind, we use you know, other methods. Anyways, so that was one, one kind of metaphor that came to mind. Another one that came to mind was like a storm chaser. We're like storm chasers that see there's something exciting happening something magnificent that we can't explain. So we want to go and, and experience and, and, and be part of it, but we know we can't be too, too close, right? Or you're going to get destroyed. And I think we're, I think kind of like a right view of God is a mixture of both in the sense that, first of all, he's not some for, force that we can control or manipulate for our own purposes. And so that's one thing I like about the metaphor of the storm because we know a storm is out of our control, right? We don't know which way the storm is moving. We know that the storm has uh, a, just it makes you small. It makes you realize how small you are, right? And, and you're kind of humbled by that storm. Yeah, we know God isn't this, this wild, crazy, destructive God, right? So we know that God is a very loving God. Um, and, and in terms of the sale analogy, one thought I had was that is that we're more like, yeah, we're the sail that, that wants to capture and be, be moved by the, the, the wind of God. But then Jesus is the one who actually controls where we're going. So I felt like that's, that was a better analogy of, of um, who God is. But more than these metaphors, because they could never capture, right? But what I want us to remember that God is not a force. He's a person. He's a person in Jesus Christ. We believe that God came in Jesus and dwelled among us, among us. He's a person. If anything, we get our personhood of who we are as just people from God. We are only truly who we are because of our right relationship with God. And that's what we, when we talk about the true self, false self, is that when we are in right relationship with God, that is when we are true, our, our true self. So personhood actually comes from God. And we know that God is a person, so we can't manipulate God like just the same way I can't manipulate my wife, right? I could have conversations with my wife. I could get to know her, but I can't tell her what to do. If you tell your wife what to do, it never turns out well. The best thing to do is listen to what wife, what your spouse, wife tells you to do. That's that's the smart choice, and the loving loving choice. No man, sorry, that's just bad, bad analogy. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. So I want to end our time this morning with seeing God, uh, seeing prayer as mission, with another concept called contemplatives in action. 
That is, we are not called to be just people of prayer or just people of action, but that we are to live and move and have our being in our communion with God. That, that action and prayer, prayer and mission are part of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Donald Blush, uh, in his book, talks about this importance of prayer in action. He says, creative action in the world entails contemplation in the sense of conscious and continual communion with God. There must be an intake of divine light into the soul before there can be an outpour or pouring out of this light upon the world. We need to hold both prayer and action together instead of becoming too focused on one or the other. If we focus too much on just praying, we can become too insular and become just all about prayer to the point of feeling superior and better than those who don't pray and miss out on what's happening in our world. Even contemplatives, even nuns and, and, and people who uh, lived in convents were never just about prayer. It was always prayer in action. And in fact, they cared, one, I think it's Benedictines, they cared so much about action in some sense, hospitality really, that they were, if anyone were to come and visit, they were to put down what they were doing. Even if they were praying, they were supposed to stop and be hospitable than to pray. If we focus too much on, uh, when, when, uh, on action, that is action-oriented discipleship without contemplation can lead to overworking and doing things for God instead of doing with God. It places self above God in that we control what, what needs to be done. Activities become a form of self-worth, and instead of taking time to reflect on what God is doing, we tell God to bless what we are doing. It becomes a form of activism that is not about God, but rather about the self. There can be times where God is calling us to something that doesn't seem practical or even that effective, yet that might be the thing that God is calling us to do. And if we're so focused on what we're doing and how we need to be productive and do the best thing as possible, maybe that's not what God is calling us to do. And we won't know that unless we spend time praying. Uh, so during this sermon series, we try to practice, I don't know if you notice this, every, after every talk, we try to um, have a prayer exercise that related to the posture of prayer. And this morning, we're going to do um, a prayer called uh, the Examine by St. Ignatius. Sorry. Um, and there, there are two significant beliefs about, uh, behind this prayer that I want us to just be aware of. One is that he believes that we can find God in all things, meaning we believe that God is already working in the world in, in your every moment. And the second one is that this idea of a contemplatives in action. Then we're called to go and live out that into the world. So this prayer is on our website for you to check out. We have a a webpage called uh, Spiritual Practices where we've listed a bunch of different practices. And so just to let you know, if you try it once and it's hard and it's like, it's not for me, try it a few more times, right? It, I, the way I look at it is it's kind of like uh, at working out. The first time you work out, you're never going to be like, this is easy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super fit, right? Like, you got to actually try it, right? And if it's too easy, actually, when you're working out, then you're not actually doing anything to your body. 
right? So it, it does take some work and practice. So I say give it a try, but we're also made very differently. So there are things, practices that are uh, easier for you or that you connect with better. So that's why we have a bunch uh, there for you. And there isn't one that's the right one or the wrong one. So um, we just encourage you to do that and try those. So let, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you're a God of love who is intimately involved in this world. And so this morning, we're gonna, we'll, we want to take time to listen to you. So we breathe slowly to focus ourselves on who you are. And I want you to think about, for the sake of time, I want us to just focus on the last, um, since the time you've woken up this morning. So since the time you've got out of bed, walk through each moment from the time you got up, went to brush your teeth, put on your clothes, and all the moments in between to your time here. Live those moments and ask yourself the question, where did you feel the most alive? Or what do you notice about those moments? If whether or not God was in those moments, where you feel the sense of joy or gratitude, but then also moments where you may have felt sad or, or, or desolation where, where things felt off or even maybe a sin that you committed or something you should have done that you didn't. So uh, let me just give you some moments to uh, sometimes just walk through your day from this morning till now.
Now take some time to ask God that question, where are you working in my life, in this church, in this world, and how can I join you in it? Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us, for the life we have, for the friends we have, the ability for us to get up, get dressed, to get even to this church in the morning. We thank you for those moments of conversations that we have with our loved ones, with our friends, the joy that they give us And yet we are sorry for times where we are selfish, self-centered, where we do things that we shouldn't have or say things we shouldn't have. Yet you are a God who forgives. You're a God who doesn't shy of away from those things, but yet through those things, give us new life. And so we're thankful for that. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to um, live out our days, that you would remind us and give us moments where we can just be aware of how you are working in our lives and in our world, and that we would join you in that. Thank you, Jesus, and we pray all of this in your in your uh, awesome name, amen.